Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? Very excited for today's interview. Before we jump into it, quick announcement. We have launched the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. If you've been hearing me talk in the last handful of months, we've got our Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard. In the past, we've had these five videos that correlate with the Intentional Growth Scorecard where we're walking through a case study showing people how to project out the value of their company, project out your cash position, your working capital, and truly how are you growing the equity value of your business. So that Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard and the videos along with the Intentional Growth Podcast Archive Library, where all 358 episodes now are inside of this organized archive, where we're going to be introducing tagging based on topics like private equity, valuations, ESOPs, net proceeds, ownership versus leadership roles. We're going to be rolling out the tagging here pretty soon, but we packaged all of this stuff up into the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. So check out the show notes below. It's free to access it where you can dive into the podcast archive library, the financial scorecard, along with the case study videos and a couple other free resources that are pulled from the Intentional Growth Academy. And that brings us to today's guest, Camille Nasita, who is amazing. I saw Camille speak at the Small Giants Summit two months ago, which if you've not heard me talk about it, I had the privilege of being one of the keynotes at Bo Burlingham and his Small Giants community at their summit and back in May. And I saw Camille on a panel with other entrepreneurs talking about their journey of growing and selling their business. And I could not wait to get her on the podcast because of how well she articulated why she did what she did. And she did not have the typical story of how she became an entrepreneur because she was, uh, she started out as an intern at Ganges Inc., where she then was working for this gentleman named John, who she's going to be talking about. And as she continued to grow and the company t- continued to grow, all of a sudden, John uh, passed away, honestly, just very random, and she'll get into it. And there was a decision to be made, and Camille decided to purchase the shares in order to be a sole owner. Lots of decisions and a lot of things that went on in that circumstance. Then she decided to grow the company, made some pivotal decisions to change and evolve the business model, which she talks through all of the you know technical challenges, but also the cultural challenges with that. She scaled the company up to hitting 27 million in revenue, about 115 employees with global clients across the world. And she then breaks down why she decided to sell her asset and her articulation of her job compared to the asset and how she was making decisions within each of those roles was nothing short of amazing. So not only is Camille amazing, but I can only imagine it would be amazing to work for her and her thought process through the entire journey you're going to experience as she lays it all out in this conversation with me and everybody who has the luxury of listening in. I won't spoil any more of the conversation. You'll be able to dive in and you're going to get a ton of value out of the conversation I had with Camille. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, I have a huge favor to ask. Just go to your podcast player and give the show a rating. It's a huge deal as we're continuing to ramp up and we're not planning on stopping anytime soon. If you're interested in additional topics or additional guests on the show, feel free to reach out to me. But the best thing you can do to help support the show is to go give us a rating on the podcast player that you use every day. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And without further ado, here's my interview with Camille Nasita. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Good morning, Camille. How are you? I am well. Good morning to you, Ryan. I am so excited for this conversation. A little context for the listeners is I saw you on a panel at the Small Giants Conference that I was at a uh, month ago, and your articulation of your story was so fantastic. You like, I could, yeah, I was, I didn't know how to describe it. So, well, let's let the (laughs) listeners judge for themselves. And uh, I just really appreciated your story and all the different zigs and zags. And so for the listeners, if you wanted to maybe just kind of just do a a 50,000 foot flyby, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack it in the sequence, the order it happened. Sure. Um, gosh, where do you even start? Right. So I guess I'll start at the beginning. What are you doing? What are you doing now? What was the business? And then, and then we'll go back and kind of talk. Okay. Through yeah. So now at the present moment, I am, uh, the managing director of the North American arm of a global, uh, human centric consultancy. So we basically talk to work with global 1000 organizations. So big brands that everybody would recognize. We help them to really understand their customers. And then we take that human understanding and help them put it into play for their business. And that could mean through organizational change or transformation for their business. It could be in their product portfolio. It could be in their communication strategy. The key is human understanding translated into really meaningful, positive impact for the businesses that we work for. I, yeah, well, I mean, I think every company should use more of that. <laughs> and like, I just think about the brands that I work with. And maybe they need to up their spend with you guys. Um, so welcomed, <laughs> yeah, welcomed. I'm sure we'll take it. Yeah. Um, why were you at the Small Giants Conference? Like, what was your gravitational pull towards that philosophy in that community? Oh, such a great question. So, gosh, I think that Small Giants, the whole philosophy, the book, came into my life really early in my career. Um, there's a consultant that um, my business has worked with for many, many years that introduced us to the book. And it, it always just spoke to me in a way that just it felt very, very natural. I don't think that I fell into the business world um, maybe as a normal person would necessarily. Um, it was for me, it was never about like hardcore financials and, you know, driving, driving, driving the business to growth. It was always more about the people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so small giants is so profoundly, um, focused on the human dimension of a business. So reading that book and hearing the stories of all these businesses that really kept that, you know, the client dimension, the employee dimension, the being part of your community. It just spoke to me in a way that it was, it was like, oh my gosh, this book is like the Bible, yeah, right? For yeah, me. Right, right. And so um, it, since then, and that was probably 25 years ago, I was exposed to the book, I would guess, right when it came out, I think. Has it been um, out that long? Maybe, you know, I might be misspeaking. But no, no, and I have no, I I have no idea, so I'm not trying to fact check. Yeah. 2005, maybe, that it's that been book out came out. 
well, it's yeah, been wow. out for a while, but we've leveraged that book for the um, core principles of our business since we read it. And we, when I say we, me, my leadership team, we expose new people to the business, to the principles of small giants, because we just believe in it that much. So when, so you know, cool. the conference is in Detroit, we're in Detroit, <laughs> easy to go there. Yeah. Um, so that's why we met each other there. Oh, yeah. it's so cool. And I agree with you. Like, um, just going to that conference, Camille, like, cause that small giants, I, I would echo how you said that you felt like it was, it kind of like felt like I was at home. And then same thing with conscious capitalism. There's so much of a theme of like, Hey, do good, make money, make a big impact. Yeah. Or, yeah it's, like, concept, right? it's like the financials will come if you do the mm -hmm. right thing. Right. Yep. And it just do right by your people and, and you'll feel good as a human too. <laughs> Lo God, what a concept. It, it, this is a wonderful wrapper to then jump into your store because, uh, and you actually gave me a great liftoff point of, you didn't get into business as, as a business owner the normal way. So I don't know if you yeah. want to start there or like maybe sure. start with how you started at the business. Yeah, let's start there. So I was, um, you know, I went to school, was in the business program, but still was even sort of flailing around with like, what's going to be meaningful for me in business? And I found this thing called marketing research way back when, and I didn't know it existed as so many people don't even maybe looking at your face. You're like, what the heck is that? But it really is what I described earlier, like understanding consumers, understanding people to help drive businesses in a more human centric way. Um, with that, I got an internship with a great company, started working with that company in there in a particular group. And when um, John Gongas, who was the group leader of the group that I was in as an intern, decided to start his own business. Everybody needs a little bit of cheap labor, right? To come along. <laughs> he asked me as the intern, if I wanted to be part of this startup. So it was John Gongas, myself, two other people that left one business and started the, um, we were the original four for what was called back then Gongas and Associates. And we were able, there was no non-compete in place, which was a beautiful thing for employees or one of our largest clients that ended up following us as well, oh, wow. which was awesome. Like it's hard to start a business without, as you know, right, without having a solid Revenue, client, there. Yeah. <laughs> client base. <laughs> so that helped to lift us off. And this was 1991. So any listeners that have been around that long, we're in a deep recession at that point in time. Like the conditions were not right to start a business, but we did it anyway. And so we started that business. I was an intern. The business, you know, has, um, gosh, we sold it in 2021, but at that point we're at 31 years as that business and grew it from four of us to eventually 150 people, um, with clients from around the globe. You, are you comfortable sharing the revenue? If not, no big deal. When we sold the company, we yeah, were sure. at about yep. 27 million, if I remember correctly. Okay. And awesome. as of last year, we hit around 32 million. That's yeah. awesome. And so when you got, when you guys start the business, who yeah. were the owners and what was the goal? Like, what was the conversation with the four of you? Yeah. So we started the owners of the business. Honestly, there was only one owner, John Gongas, which namesake. The rest of us came along for the ride. Um, but about four years in, maybe five years in, we were granted minority shareholdership. Okay. So that okay. that point, there would have been four of us um, as actual owners of the business. The whole idea was really we the we were working for another business that we felt like mm, we wanted to run a business in a little bit different way. And we thought we could have this great combination of um, a well-run business, like a human-centered business, 
while also being great researchers. I mean, we're all practitioners more than anything at that point, mm-hmm. not business owners or business mindset. You were right? the deliverable. We were the, we did everything from receptionist yeah. <laughs> back in the day where you actually took, you know, the receptionist. Uh, were you using shorthand, <laughs> Camille? That's my question. <laughs> no, I did not go that far. <laughs> but um, yeah, the vision was really just to be a, a great marketing research firm. That's awesome. And so it, what was the span? Cause you guys, uh, obviously started to grow and I don't know if you want to jump right to what the, how you ended up as the business yeah, owner, if there's anything there. in between, yeah, anything in between that you want to cover? Yeah. I mean, I guess in between, I would say we, our philosophy as a company, very small giant like was only to grow at the rate we could find hire, retain, attract and retain great mm-hmm. people. So there was never this thing like, oh, we've got to have this fast growth thing. If growth came by way of having great people, doing great work for our clients and having a strong client loyalty and employee loyalty. So that was always our, our motto. So, you know, when you say 31 years and you only grew to 150 people, eh, compared to a lot of startups, that might not sound so big or great, but uh, well, for us, I, it was purposeful. It was purposeful. I want to challenge that because like, I think maybe a year ago, people would have said that, but there's a lot of startups where their valuations because they're burning cash and they don't have anything that's got a product pricing fit, yeah. where if they had a big chunk of cash flow that they could value, I think people might be a little jealous, to be honest. So. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. And I guess it's all about how you look at it, but you know, just growing the business at a really steady clip. We were probably growing about 10% per year was about the average. And of course, there were some years where it was 20% and other years where it was 2%, just depending on how the economy went. But we had we had a great, well-run business. And in 2021, I believe, it, no, not 2021, 2012, get my numbers straight here, um, we had a big doozy. Our, our John, John Gongas, our, the founder of the business, um, passed away traumatically and... Um, from diagnosis of cancer to death was literally eight days. He was so diagnosed. Was it melanoma? It was metastat. It was melanoma that had okay. metastasized to four other organs, and by the time they caught it, I mean there was just isn't that crazy. Just in general, like I, I interviewed another guy that his name was Mark Johnson, and his business partner literally it was ten days. Yeah. And I mean, it just that it could be, you could be fine. And then literally that fast anyways, we don't have to. Well, and it's, it, well, he wasn't fine. Like for a year, I would say yeah. prior to that, he was having issues, but the doctors just couldn't isolate, you know, whatever it was. And then by the time they found it, it's like, well, gosh, we know why you're having stomach issues. Cause you've got cancer. That meant to, I mean, it just such uh-huh. a tragic, tragic experience for him, his family and, and for all of us. Um, but that, I mean, in, in its weird way, became how I ended up owning the business and um, becoming the CEO of the business. So I mentioned he was the majority shareholder. There were three others of us who had minority shareholder interest. Um, one of those people had left the the picture, I don't know, a few years prior to that, um, maybe um, several years job, prior. From the job or are they still on the cap table? No, they actually left the business, the job and the cap table. The okay. person, he actually had a stroke. So he ended up okay. leaving the business in that way. Um, so there were then at that point, there were three of us. But one of the really critical moments, like you think back and you can tie all these things together, mm-hmm. right? One of the critical moments with all of this is when John Gongas had had some bad experiences in past life, right? About having equal shareholdership within a business. So 
when the other shareholder moved out of the picture, picture, the person who had the stroke, there were two minority shareholders left at that point. John was really purposeful about giving, controlling extra shares to one of those people. That happened mm. to be me. So that if anything ever happened to him, it wouldn't be an equal situation. There would be a person that actually had mm. the controlling interest. That was really counter- intentional. How, how did your counterpart uh, take that? And she didn't love it. <laughs> um, I mean, if I'm being honest, yeah, yeah well, she, no, she didn't love it. That. But I think that we both saw the um, the purpose in it and the intuition in it. And with that as well, there was a buy-sell ing- agreement in place so that, again, if anything happened to any of us, there was a really clear pathway to how does the business or the other shareholders buy the remaining or that that shareholder out. So when John passed away, his shares go off the table. We buy his family out with a combination of insurance as well as proceeds from the business, right? Um, and then there's two people left with the remaining shares, one having controlling interest. I mean, what a amazing doing. I mean, like, yeah, like, because like all of the things that could have gone wrong in that situation and he somehow, he must have had a really painful experience in order to do all that experience and to do all that because you only do, you only know it's necessary if you've lived. If you've been through it, right? Yeah. And I think that it's such, I know, you know, this title of this podcast, Intentional Growth, and you might not think about succession planning as intentional growth, but that was a clear plan for succession planning as well as the structure of the stock in the business. Yeah. And I think it's so important. It. Yeah. Well, and, and you, like when you were on the panel, you know, you, uh, you saw my presentation as well. And you said like the, the importance of separating the leadership W2 from the asset and you yeah. like naturally, like I could tell that was already baked into your mindset. So like, was that coming from John? Cause, and the reason I'm going down this rabbit hole is like the, the definition of succession planning in your mind. How does, yeah. what does that mean? Cause that's different than maybe the, the buy sell agreements. Or anything. Such a good question because no, no one ever talked to me <laughs> about like, Hey, there's a difference between owning a company and leading a company. I mean, it just, it smacks you in the face when you are put into that situation overnight and it literally was overnight. Um, but there was never any conversation around that. Like I was John's clear successor to lead the business. And he was at the point in his career where he was starting to phase out a little bit, even before yeah. he passed away. So even to the organization, it felt like people knew that I was that next okay. person yep, up. Yep, yep. So, But that was to lead the company. The ownership piece is a completely different ballgame, as you know. And you really have to wear those two hats simultaneously when you come into... Um, and come into owning a company, right? And and no one, no one prepared me for that. So, how in God's name were you so thoughtful about the process then? Because when you were explaining, because <laughs> when you were explaining your story on the panel, and, and maybe you can uh, um, do it do it again to some fashion of what you were thinking about. Should I buy this company? Should I do it? Should I not? And I was like, most people are like, let's do it. What does this mean? And then after they sign all the documents. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I'll be completely honest without getting too woo-woo here. When what happened to John happened, I really felt like, huh, I I know my purpose. Like there was never even a question. There was never even a question about should I do this or not? It was almost like he told me what was happening. 
I've been with this business my entire adult life. I have such a strong passion and love for this business. Of course, I'm going to take it forward, right? Now, I needed to make sure my leadership team was also in line with Mm -hmm. that. Um, But there was never a doubt in my mind about, even with the financial risk that was at stake, you know, we talked to my husband, of course, we, but there was never, it was always just like, yeah, naturally we're going to do this. And it really, I felt like it was a purpose, a calling to mm-hmm. be able to have the honor, honestly, the privilege of being able to take this amazing company, group of people, group of clients and lead it forward. Oh my gosh, that, yeah, that awesome. opportunity is, is just gives me chills still to think well, about. What I'm picking up off of that, how you phrase that, it was about the purpose and the impact that you could make. It wasn't it the was, money first. It, for right sure. It, I right mean, right honestly, the money part, it's like my house was on the line for a while. <laughs> like there were the money part. No, it was more about the love of the people and the love of the clients and just knowing that I wanted to be able to step up to the how opportunity. The team at that point? At that point, we were about 100 people, maybe okay. just shy of 100 people at that point, you know, and a very close knit group. So then you go back, you're saying yeah. that you're, you get to the point where you're stabilizing the business. Stabilizing what does that mean the business. To so um, to me, stabilizing the business meant, okay, we just lost our owner. Is everybody good here, right? Are our employees feeling confident and like we can take this place forward? Reassuring our clients that everything was going to be fine and we were going to be able to take this place forward. We had at least three high quality companies, I would say, that approached us, right, to say, can we acquire you at this point mm-hmm, in time? Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt like they were there to kind of, they thought they needed to rescue us. Um, we'll and rescue you at a very <laughs> fair price. <you> know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk to you about that price. But, um, and that's where I had the conversation with our leadership team. Like, hey guys, here we are, 20, 21-ish years in. Most of these people had been with the business for many, many years. Do we want to take this place forward? Because it's going to be hard, right? Like this mm-hmm. isn't going to be just like business as usual. We need to make sure that everybody's okay and we're taking this place forward. Um, and everybody was, it was a resounding yes. Again, there was cool. nobody on that team that was thinking now was the time to stop. But we did take the opportunity. And I promise I will add, answer your question about the other shareholder in a second. I'm getting okay. yeah, yeah. through via this story. That was also the time where we took the opportunity to say, okay, 20 years in, we've got a great business here. Um, we're profitable. We're growing. But the industry around us is changing. And, you know, big data was entering the scene, right? So our mode of operation is talking to consumers, getting information, you know, synthesizing that, giving that back to clients. Well, they now can get information about their consumers in a variety of different well, ways. Like, so this is what, like 2012 too? You're 2012, yeah. Yeah, so you're talking Facebook, LinkedIn, oh, data analytics, like that's all like coming your right your shopper to the scene. loyalty card. They're yeah. collecting Holy information, crap. right? Yeah, yeah. So we're looking at the scene around us and the changing client um, needs and saying, okay, we could continue on the way that we are because we're pro- nobody's telling us we need to change. But should we yeah. take this opportunity to transform the business, set a vision for the next 10 years and become something, leveraging our core competencies, but become mm-hmm. something bigger, more relevant to our clients and our people? And again, we said, yes, let's do it. So How that- did you guys come to that conclusion? Did you guys like have practices that you do with your clients that you guys applied to yourself or like, cause this is the, like what you're talking about, Camille, yeah. why I think it's so fascinating is like with systems like EOS, which I love, I love systems, yep. structured systems like that, but they, 
I, I find that they fall a little short on like more strategic decision-making frameworks of like right product, right service, right market, right fit, that kind of stuff. So how did you guys determine that it was worth the risk? We determined it. Uh, I mean, I will say it probably wasn't the most scientific process, but we we knew we had things that we were doing <laughs> as a business that already diversified us from our competition. Okay. Um, good example of that would be in our business, we call it storytelling, right? So you're not just handing over information to a client, but you're literally creating a story that helps motivate their business to, you know, to change. Um, in very simple terms. So we took some of the things, we looked at what we were already doing. We call them our core competencies mm-hmm. to say like, what are we already doing that we can either arrange in a different way to create even more value for our clients? Or are there certain capabilities that would accentuate these core competencies and would or should we build those out? So a great, for instance, data analytics, right? We were... um really strong in what we will call marketing research analytics at that time. Think smaller data sets, like a mm-hmm. thousand people, 2000 people, big data. You're talking unstructured data, huge yeah. data sets. Should we bring people on board to that are um, able to bring that capability for us in house? So thinking about a few different things, data analytics, um, create creative and design shops, as well as strategic consulting. Those were kind of our three key areas that we wanted to build up longer term. A lot of companies probably would have gone out and maybe bought those capabilities. We decided, no, we're going to develop those organically, bring some people in, but also use it as an opportunity to maybe upskill some of the people that already existed. So again, there's the future that they can see, like a reason Mm -hmm. to believe for the people as well as to like, okay, I've been here 15 years. Do I want to keep going here or go somewhere else? Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. stay here because we're transforming the business and you're part of that vision and that journey. That's awesome. And I can only imagine like, oh my God, because that's similar, totally different industries, but our old industry was like trying to evolve into the tech technology player. And so many people went the acquisition route and then you're smashing together different cultures, different skill sets. I couldn't imagine you have the leader that passes away, you change the business model, and then you throw in a bunch of new people that are completely different. Like, no, that sounds like a recipe for We disaster. just didn't so think that was right for us. Yeah. And we probably <laughs> could have changed why. courses at a certain point and said, okay, it's been long enough. We could, we could buy a little boutique business or something, but it just, you think you're going to grow faster that way. But I think, like you said, the smashing together of cultures and everything else slows you down. And it's already hard to change or to get people. You're already you know, dealing with people, man. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, you don't need that. So with all of that said, the other shareholder in the business just wasn't really lined up, maybe in the same way with this idea mm-hmm. of transforming the business. So, you know, eventually we ended up, I ended up buying her out of the business okay. as Got well. It. Yeah. And what was the, out of the three different avenues you could have gone, what was the route? How did you guys decide to uh, change the business model? Out of the three different, so those three things I just mentioned. Did you do all three of them? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did all three. We did all three of them. And the original was we sort of started them up with different brand names. So the, you know, the Gongus business was just Gongus. And then we started them up under different. Uh, sub brand names to give okay. them a differentiated look and feel in the marketplace so that clients we had been working with forever weren't like, well, like, why are these, how are these people now doing this new thing under the Gongus name? So we gave it a new value proposition. Super interesting, Camille, because in uh, like I've been in services companies or service 
tech enabled service or product enabled service, but it's always at the root, like been service. Yeah. And it is so confusing as all hell. It's like, wait a second, you were a copper company. How come you can do software now? And <laughs> right? it's like, well, let me tell you a two hour story. And so like, yeah, it's so confusing. It's like, so yeah, very fascinating how you did that. And like, so were they, and you said you were there organic, you bring some people in where they're at. How did you manage those units? Did you have like targets with them to see if they were we working or we did. Yeah, we did have targets with them. And one, I will tell you, didn't work out. I mean, two, three years in, we were like, okay, this one is not panning out the way that we thought it would. And so we took some of the, like, but it was, here's the biggest thing. It was never, even if something didn't work out, there was always a positive in that we had experienced something. We experimented with something and we mm-hmm. learned stuff that we could add to either the core of our business or one of those other business units. Like I always talk about the very first one we tried was kind of a bomb, if I'm being honest. But it was the thing that lit the fire underneath us and said, ooh, we can do something different though. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. not this, but we can do something different here. It's super fascinating. And what I love about, like what I'm curious about your thoughts on this, Camille, is like in professional services in general, I yeah. think that the more things you F up, <laughs> the more valuable you are to your yep. clients. Cause you're like, oh, guess, guess what? We tried that and it doesn't work for these That's reasons. So, so the competitor true. you're looking at is probably going to deal with these problems that we did too. So it's a, yeah. I, I do find it valuable. Yeah. Well, I see it to our people all the time. It's like, okay, even if you don't have a consulting, like a traditional consulting background, if you've been here at our business for any length of time, you can consult our clients on a lot of the things that they're facing because we've been through it on our uh-huh. ourselves. So you've That's walked awesome. in those shoes. So yes, we well, sub-branded stuff originally. And then eventually as those things started to take off, we ended up folding everything back under one okay. brand umbrella. What, what year was that? Like, what was the... Uh, Oof, gosh. So we launched the first new one in 2013, another one in 2014. I think we brought them all together under one umbrella in 2018, probably. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. So what's your, what's your uh, executive team structure look like? Because I've, if, if Gongus is uh, so passionate about succession planning, how are you looking at your team? Yeah. So our team is basically a um, combination of the heads of functional areas of the business. Mm -hmm. So I've got, you know, my traditional COO, the operations person, CFO, uh, a growth which person, which is business development and marketing capabilities, capabilities, solutions lead. That would be, you know, think of our products and services as solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Like the overhead of the services. Well, no, it's really more like taking things that are, um, that we see as growth areas of the business and making sure we're giving them a really good path forward. When I think about sort of the, um, progression or innovation uh, to performance, we've got a guy, mm-hmm. our chief innovation officer. I think of him as like fuzzy front end. He's on our leadership team too. So he'd be the person who's like looking for emerging needs and saying like, Ooh, should we explore this idea? Talk to clients about it. Is it worthy of further mm-hmm. exploration? Fuzzy front end. And I've got my fuzzy um, front end. I, I love it. Uh, way, that's why I like to stay most of my life. It's just in the fuzzy front end. <laughs> other people do the other stuff. Well, and you've got to have a certain mindset to be in the fuzzy front end. And Greg, are, are, he does. He's perfect there. Um, if we see potential, then we start to build structure around it. And it moves into what we would call our commercial solutions area. And those are opportunities that we see for that could, if we spend the right time and energy on them, we might be able to accelerate those to be okay. main growth areas. 
Then things go from there to our chief operating officer who's focused on performance. Like these are the mainstay core Mm -hmm. things of our business. Her job is to make sure those things are running like a well-oiled machine. So there's Mm -hmm. sort of that spectrum, right? Where it's like, everything's not made equal. All of our services are not made equally. We've got that portfolio going for us. Well, it's it's super fascinating. And I'm curious on this, on services. Cause like I, I'm doing two things. One is like, cause I've got the sales and the um, uh, finance kind of lens of both sides. It's like the people that you're talking to obviously need to have the separation of the different, you know, ways to describe it, but then the analytics to say, Hey, like, here's what's working. But on the sales side, it's like, I always see if I can articulate this, like this Camille. It's like, sometimes when you're out there talking to a client, you need to offer all those things. Yeah. And that's part of like the flywheel, but there's going to be like 80% of the time they're right down the middle or whatever it is. I mean, so it's like this need for all of them, but then you're still treating them the way that they should be treated on the financials, but the resources, is that? Yeah, oh, to- for sure. So if I think about our business today, for instance, 70% of what we do would still be what I would consider, um, you know, marketing research. So where we started yep. way back when, I mean, obviously updated with new techniques and everything else, but that's 75% of our business. The other 25% would be these things that we've developed over the course Got of it. the last however many years. And again, more... Um, different marketing techniques for those or a different way of talking to clients about it. And every client might not want everything like you're saying, Ryan, but you got to have it all. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So then how, like, what was, as you're talking to your executive team, as you're growing, um, was there, who would, how were you handling or thinking about your successor from your job? And did anybody else, like, did, did you do anything where like your time, like compensation, like profit, sharing or like a phantom stock plan towards some target or goal? That's a really good question too. So we did, um, you know, we sold, but we, prior to that, we did have a phantom stock plan for the business and everybody on the leadership team was tied into that. Yeah. And that was, that was the extent of it though. So everybody on the leadership team was, was tied into that. And we decided for many reasons, um, to do that versus offering more common stock. So many intricacies with common stock to both the person that, that has it right from a tax perspective and everything else. (laughs) Um, Well, you wanted to be an owner, Camille, here's your K1. And by the way, your tax bill. I mean, there are years (laughs) where it's like, okay, why, why do I want to own a part of this business? We're Phantom stock, it's just so, it was such an easy way to tie people in as well as um, get them focused in the right direction, right? How am I contributing awesome. to the growth of this organization? Yeah. Awesome. And and who were you, th- did you have one person, like, was it your COO or specific division head that would have been replacing you? Were you working on that before you sold or did the selling kind of trigger not having to do that? So the, so the selling triggered not having to actually pick that. Okay successor. Cause I will be honest with that too. I mean, that owner versus leader of the company, right? When you think about your successor as an owner, whew, that brings up a whole lot of different options or people, right? Then if you're looking at replacing yourself as a leader of an mm-hmm. or a, a positional leader. So it's like, now that I'm in the position I am as a managing director of a region, so much easier for me to think about succession Mm -hmm. planning than prior to that. I was stuck. I mean, I will tell you honestly, pre this, I I wouldn't have been able to tell you who the successor of the business was. Let's unpack that because thank you very much for like saying it that 
clearly of being stuck because I think that this is a huge deal for like, I mean, you think about that group that we we're that room that yeah. we we're in in small giants, every single one of them is going to have to deal with this at some point. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's, they could either choose the John Gongas route of like <laughs> actually doing it, <laughs> doing it like intentionally or just pretending it doesn't exist. So what got you stuck And you, when you were on the panel, you were explaining very clearly your thoughts swirling around in your head. I don't know if you can pick back up on that, but like what, what got you stuck and what was not clear? I mean, I feel like if we're talking succession planning, what got me stuck is, um, it became so much more personal. Not that I wouldn't want to, not that, you know, a, a positional leader is less personal, but like when you own a business and trying to figure out who's going to then take that business forward, it became so much more personal where it was just like, I was trying to put myself into like, oh, well, this person doesn't have XYZ characteristics that I have. So clearly they wouldn't be like, that's the mindset I was in, which was not the right mindset, but it's hard to get yourself out of that when this thing has been your baby and you're trying to figure out like who's taking your baby forward. I could see a team of people. Like there was always, I was never, um, thinking, oh my gosh, our team couldn't take this forward, but like mm -hmm. to pick a person, that's where I got stuck in it all. And I will be honest with you too, like in conversations that I would have with people, I don't think there was anybody who really wanted it. I work really hard, unfortunately mm -hmm. or fortunately, and mm -hmm. put so much passion and energy into that leader position as an owner that I think people were just like, I don't know if I want that level of a co of commitment. I mean, these people are committed for sure, but maybe not in that same way. And yep. I, I think it's part of the EOS model. You know, that whole, does the person get it? Do they want it? And are they capable of it? I could check the box on two of those things for a lot of people, but maybe not the third. And that's where you're just like, okay, does the and owner... The third would be the one. The, the really it. wanting it. Yeah, or maybe fair. it was like, I sort of could do it, but like they would be have to be complemented by another person. So it's like two yep, people yep. maybe could yep. take it forward in the way that I would have wanted. Yep, and yep, again, yep. part of that is like me needing to get over myself probably, <laughs> right? Uh, well, I think, I, think uh, I mean, maybe there's, maybe I'll give you a degree of truth in that, but like, I think what you experience is very real for everybody. You yeah. know what I mean, it's like, it's your baby. It's and one it's choice, like, it's, right? It, it is. And even though I talk a lot about ownership versus leadership, I think it, it, it takes a slight twist when you have a professional services organization. Yeah. And I have a friend that was on my show year, uh, like a few months ago. He did an ESA. He actually turned his company into an ESA, but his, he, he helped me think through this because he had like 55 people, software development. I mean, like just totally the culture, like the bean bags and the gut dogs yeah. and everything you yes. can think of. And he was like, and I think a lot of issues with like law firms, CPA firms, and those type of firms where at some point the people that are second generation going, I'm working this hard. So they sit on the beach. <laughs> versus like, yeah, versus I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Right, like a manufacturing firm or a yeah. tech firm or yeah. some, you know, product, you know, like it's more, there's more stuff going on where yeah. it's like a little bit more like obvious why, why someone could be a passive owner. But yeah. when you're in a professional services firm, like if you really articulate it, like someone else is working. So someone else doesn't have to. Yeah. Which doesn't seem <laughs> I mean, right to anyone. Like that wouldn't even feel right to me in that equation. Right. So it just, it was hard, but then it's like, if you're just looking at, okay, well, who could take over from me someday as managing director of a region, 
there's a job description for that. There's not a job description for owning a company. There, I think like that alone, everybody owns a company differently. I knew my way of owning a company. (laughs) That was really cool and well said. I like how you put that. Hey, everybody, Ryan here. Sorry for interrupting the podcast. I just wanted to say that if you're enjoying and resonating or wanting the level of clarity that Camille is talking about her plan and how she executed her growth plan, I highly recommend going and checking out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. We're trying to make it easy for you to jump into the additional material. So we've got the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard in there where you can take the assessment, you can get in a view on how well you're running the company as a financial asset, you get one overall score. There's five videos where I walk you through a case study and how to project out the value of your company so you can forecast out your cash position, your distributions, your taxes, and the future equity value of your company. So you could have the level of clarity that Camille has. If someone were to give you an out of the blue offer, you could say, well, I need X amount. And with this deal structure, because this is what I need, that level of clarity brings a lot of peace. Trust me, I watch clients who embrace that after they do the hard work and life becomes so much easier. Also inside of the starter kit, we've included the podcast archive library, which we're going to be introducing the tagging based on different topics like valuations, ESOPs, private equity, et cetera. And then also we've included five videos, one overview video on each of the five principles, along with additional PDF resources that we've pulled from the Academy. Because I just want you to be able to taste the experience of the Academy of what this knowledge can do to you and your business without having to commit to the 10 hours and or the in, in the full Academy or a full boot camp. Go check out the starter kit. It'll give you an idea of what's in store and what that kind of knowledge could look like. And now I will leave you back into the interview with Camille. When you were talking on the panel, you were talking about... um how you thought about owning a financial asset and like why you decided to start exploring the sale. So maybe like how, how did this, so you had, you're stuck with, let me see if I got this right. So you're stuck with the succession planning question for the reasons you just described. Yep. What happens after that? Did you, did you then go, okay, well then I'm starting to look externally and it may, maybe you went to a peep, a person or was it a buyer? So in my head, and we explored ESOP too. Like that was also a piece of the equation. I mean, in my head, I knew that the most, like probably the most viable option for exiting the business, both financially and for myself, would be a strategic buyer. Um, okay. I don't think I was a hundred percent settled on that. That just kind of came along with the um, the territory, and we can get into that in a few minutes. But I. I the ESOP equation for a lot of different reasons just didn't make sense with the, with the situation that we were in. And do you mind, do you mind unpacking that yeah. in, 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 to whatever extent you think you feel comfortable? And so I, I believe what I heard you say last month, Camille, which, cause I, I always struggle with how to describe this to people that have been through our program where it's like, Hey, like separate leadership ownership. Now we're talking about your asset. And so like yep. with the ESOP, you know, you can get half the money up front, you carry the other half. And however you articulated not being okay from an investor's perspective for carrying that, I was like, holy shit, can we put that? In I don't such remember what I words? said. I wish I, I could remember. remember. But that, well, and that's why, that's why I wanted to prime you a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, I don't know if like, like, you had already like covered the job thing. And then you were talking about it from like an investor's perspective of like the weight of that. So I don't oh, know if you want to pick I mean up. that. Yes, I can talk about for sure. The weight piece of it was, um, so, I mean, let's add this part to the story too. When I decided that it was 
maybe time-ish <laughs> to sell, right? COVID had hit. So this, let's take ourselves to 2020, right? COVID hit. Do we hit. have to? No, <laughs> <I know. laughs> Can you believe that was three years ago at this point? Nope. It's, that is crazy no. to me. Um, but so COVID had hit. I had turned, you know, in the midst of this, like 52 years old, right? Not that that's super old, but in my head, two things happened at that point. One, um, I knew that at that point, 30 years in, that I probably wanted to do something else at some point in time. I love the business, love what I'm doing, but also knew that I that there's there's You've something been here else since college. out there. Yeah, exactly. I've been here since college. There's something else out there. There's a new thing I want to start. There's a new something new I want to do. And two, from a financial perspective, so the financial asset piece, right? My family's main investment is this business. So much so that it even affected how we how risk averse we were with other investments, right? Very conservative mm -hmm. with other investments because I own a business and that's a risky investment. So at 52, right, my husband and I start talking about this and it's like, all right, we should probably have some type of plan, not just for the succession of the leadership management of the business, but our financial future and in mm -hmm. making sure we know what we want to get out of this business, right? As well as the timeline for that. So um, that was the point in time, sort of the, the connection of all mm -hmm. those dots where I said, all right, in the next three to five years, I want to have this place sold and me having actually exited and be able to do that next thing, whatever it is. So from the little interactions we've had, when you say something like that, I actually believe you where the rest of the population says three to five years so they don't have to address any of their problems <laughs> so they can just ignore it for another two years. And then they say again in two years, another oh, three to five me. years. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I know that situation for sure. I've seen it. Um, but here's the weird thing about all of that is um, when I said it, you know, I was probably like the rest of the population, like three to five years. Uh, but it, because of COVID, I was pretty serious about it. Like, okay. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, like this I, is like brings it a little home, right? Yeah. But I put like, it was almost like the universe was in those conversations too, because, and I think I said this in the panel, as soon as I sort of released that or liberated myself to say like, okay, I've got a time horizon now. Mm -hmm. That's when... um as I explained, we never put the company up for sale. I didn't work with a mm -hmm. broker. We had three, not all at the same time, but three really great companies that I respected approach us. And it's not as if I hadn't had approaches before we had, I was never, mm -hmm. I always talked to other companies just to, you know, hear what was going on, but I was never serious about it at that point. Since I had set mm -hmm. that time horizon, it's like, okay, these companies are approaching. They're great companies. Let's explore the conversations. Mm -hmm. So before we go and follow that, yeah. that tra uh, trail, if if you can do us a favor and the listeners of like, what was your understanding? So you said there was a variety of reasons that you didn't want the ESOP. And I yep. don't know if it oh, was yeah. just the carrying, carrying of the note or whatever, but also just, um, um, is, uh, what your perspective on how companies were valued. And the reason I think about that, how important that is, is because it's part of the, like the data set as people are looking at an ESOP, looking at these strategic, should I hire an investment banker or broker 
their level of understanding of how companies are valued and what they might get yeah. will impact why they chase something. And yep. sometimes it's by accident. Sometimes it's like, oh, here's the reasons. And I thought you did a pretty good job of saying, these are the reasons I went this route. Yeah. And it was pretty well thought through. So I think of the value of the company or the way that I wanted to be thought of in selling the company is for whoever was buying us to be really keyed in on the future potential, the future value of the company, not just what we were doing today, but because we had put so many things in place to transform the business. And we were, we were op- starting to operate on all cylinders with that plan, but man, there's still so much, um, great value that being, can be created with the business model we created. I wanted the buying company to be able to see that future potential. The, the investment that you're, because you made the investment, made the, the cash flow is not maybe. No. Yeah. yeah. And so I feel like future potential was a big part of my value equation. And with an ESOP, I don't feel like that necessarily was as big a part of You'd have to tell one hell of a story to the ESOP trustee, like, trust me, it's <laughs> right, going to do exactly. it. So that was a piece. Because <laughs> they're not in the industry. And that, well, that's an interesting point to highlight because an ESOP trust, it's such a financial valuation that it's about projecting the performance. And if you're evolving the company, there's not proof necessarily. Well, and in fact, I mean, we had a couple of not so great years as we were transforming, as you can imagine, right? You kind of have to take yeah. a couple steps backwards from a profit perspective mm-hmm. before you can get that big leap yeah, forward. Makes a ton of sense. So there was that piece, but then there was also, which I conveyed, I didn't want the monkey on my back anymore of owning a company. The idea mm-hmm. of being able to lead a company and help people help our clients Still wanted that, but I was ready to shed the financial and risk burden of owning a company. Love it. So then when you had these people reach out, um, what explain your team and how you were vetting out these offers and why you didn't hire an investment banker or broker? Um, gosh, I think part of it, and, and it's funny because I can hear my, um, so I have three advisors that I've used from the business for, for a long time. Our strategic advisor, like he helps us with the strategic planning, the small, the guy who introduced small mm-hmm. giants to us, okay. um, financial advisor, accounting firm and legal. As soon as I made this idea of the three to five years, I talked to the financial or accounting firm, right? And he's great, understood. They have a whole arm of their company that helps handle mergers and acquisitions. And when these companies started approaching us and I started having conversations, everything was just flowing so naturally. I didn't bring him or anybody else in until things got more serious. All The only person that was accompanying me on all of these calls was our CFO. And by the time we got to a place where we were talking deal structures or negotiating, it just didn't make sense to bring a broker. Like we were doing just fine without having a broker with us. And it it Mm -hmm. also was one of those things where it's like, well, there's a whole fee structure associated with a broker Mm -hmm. as well. And we just didn't feel like it might sound silly. Didn't feel like we needed it. I, so I'll say, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth for a second. Yeah. I want to hear your thoughts. So makes a ton of sense, like actually 100% sense. And then the listeners are probably confused why I'm saying that because I feel like you understood what you had. Oh, so like yeah. I have sat on this side of the mic, Camille, now almost six or almost uh, 400 times. And literally people will tell me a story like that. And it's got to be three out of five or four out of five where it's like, they'll say something like that. And I'm like, they like this one woman, actually, she had sold two insurance companies. She yeah. told me that she's like, why would I want to do that? I have to pay some commissions. And I'm like, Camille, this is what I did. I said, I said, Gail, well, 
was it a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of revenue that they valued it on? She goes, what's EBITDA? Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> That's exactly I was like, oh, no. Like, I, so, like, she went through that whole process and didn't know what normalized EBITDA was. So, like, my, my, I guess, long story to say, did you understand how it was valued? And if yeah. you were to go out, outside, like, what would be the incremental value you might harvest by hiring someone? Yeah. So we knew what the value we do. A, we did a company valuation every single year based on a formula. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> okay. So every year okay. we valued the company. We did it for me as the primary or as the sole shareholder. But we also did it. Remember, there was that buy sell that was in place when there were more shareholders than just me. That was part of that, that the part of the contract of the buy sell is that every year we did a valuation. So again, if anything happened, we would have an agreed upon value of the company. How, how valuable was that data as you were managing the business? That, I mean, it was amazing, right? Every year to have that um, valuation done. So it was, it was very clear. We knew what, I mean, a company's only worth what a buying company is willing to pay, right? So the valuation done doesn't mean that somebody else is going to pay you for that. Right. But, but also you, cause and I can only say this cause you saw the presentation, but it, there's a intrinsic value based on the financial right. cash flow. Like at least there's a baseline there's a that you can say at least I can. Yeah. There's a baseline. You can get for a premium it. from someone else. Okay. Yeah. But like, again, most, but you, it's like, it's insane. Can you imagine like the, the general population running a business and having zero idea it it would drive me crazy because not at all um but i think piece crazy. a part of that too you made me think something hang on one second the valuation um oh in our industry there also are pretty clear multiples so we knew mm -hmm. like okay here's what we think the value is and if you times it by four or eight or whatever mm -hmm. you kind of know around what range you're going to be it's in our industry it's either the multiples or it's like one-time sales, right? For a professional yeah, which services they're just business. A pro yeah, they're just getting to a proxy of the cash yep. flow anyways from that, yeah. from that yep. rule of thumb. Got it. So awesome. But so then you got these three people. Yeah, no, yeah. I love it. Well, and I think, so they were the advisors, right? Throughout the entire thing. Um, but I think the other piece of it and really important to the story is I didn't have to sell. Like if there's anything that I want to make sure listeners hear is don't get so far down the path where you're in a position that you have to sell or try not to. Because I think that's the other reason why I didn't feel it was necessary to have a broker. Because again, I had people chirping in my ears like, get a broker. You could you know, increase the amount that you're getting. One, I didn't want to have the pressure of a broker saying, oh, well, you said you're going to sell, so we need to go out and sell. I could walk out of the mm -hmm. deal structure at any point in time with not having mm -hmm. one. And I knew, like, I knew what I thought the value was. Um, I also knew my husband and I, like we knew what we wanted to get out of the business from a financial perspective. And as yeah, you know, what we're very intentional about that, but that, that, that knowing what you want from a financial perspective, you know, it's only part of the equation. There's so much more to it, but that piece for us was always the, um, I'll say liberating piece. Cause it's like, you could get more money. And we did. The three deals were very different. As you know, I, I didn't go with the one that offered the most money because I didn't feel like that was best for our employees and our clients. And you could be greedy and go, well, it's 20% more. For sure, I'm going to go with that one. But the other ones met the criteria of what we wanted out of the business. And I just didn't 
again, there's probably people listening on what the hell? Why wouldn't oh, you go for the highest I, offer? But I needed to be just the financial. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate all that. And I apologize for talking over you. Is nope. it, I, get too excited, I get too excited about it. It's a, you sell the presentation. I was at Bo's conference yep. because the people listening in, it's like, it, I think Camille, Camille, like, and I want to go back and I want to unpack the decision tree that you went yeah. through with these three buyers. Cause I think it's super helpful, but it's a, uh, here's what I find power in Camille is that if the, cause it's not about the financials first. And I absolutely agree with you, but the weird part is, is like the horse that we ride at for our company is the financials. And it's only so that someone like you could sit down and be like a, B and C here's what I need. Here's what it means to me. But then what you're, what I see people do is they can quantify the the value that they're leaving to get what they want. Yeah, that's a true statement. So it's like, that's like hey, true, it's going to be. Statement. I'm just making. Yeah, I'm just making up. But it's going to be a leave a million bucks on the table. I get what I want, but I want these things, and it's going to cost me a million bucks. Who gives a shit? Because I actually got what I wanted already. So like. <laughs> It's like, but you need a baseline to know whether you should or shouldn't do something. And that's the key. Know what that baseline is. That's right. Know what that baseline is. That's one of your pieces. And then there's, like we said, so many things around it. Like, what do you want for the employees? What do you want for your next step? And if you have a vision for your business, are the chances of carrying out that vision good? Or how important is the next company carrying out that that vision? How important is that to you? Like, to me, those are sort of the four things surrounding the decision. I love it. I love it. I love it. So why, as you're talking to these three, how did you, what was the process for you to get comfortable with the data that you gathered on the three buyers and how they were representing those things that you just mentioned? When you say process, like meaning talking to them, like getting so, the information back like, from yeah, them. Yeah. 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 Like how did you, how did you get to the point? Cause like people can say stuff and not mean it. So like, there's a combination of like getting the information, believing the information, yeah. and then making sure that it's going to happen afterwards. Yeah. So how did you get, get it and then compare the three? It's oh gosh, I mean, it's tricky, right? For everybody. But I think that it was um, a lot of conversations, like be, being part of this process. And again, an, a good reason for not bringing too many people into the process, it sucks up a ton of time, right? Like you're trying to manage a business and keep things focused on growing the business because of course you want it to grow so you can get the value from it. Um, but you've got this whole side job about talking to other people about your business, but just as important, like you're saying, making sure you're getting that information back from them. So, you know, when I think about those things I just mentioned, financial, let's take that out of the equation right now, because mm -hmm. it's easy mm -hmm. to figure out that part. Well, you're, you're, you, were, you were clear on it, so we yep. can actually just move on. Yeah. <laughs> like <that's> simple. <laughs> so the second piece is um, really exploring the employee and client dimension, right? So if we go this route, what's going to end up to our, with our employees? what's going to end up with our clients, um, and then the whole future of the business part of it. So for instance, the one of the companies... So there was one company, the one we ended up going with, right? It was with us for, for the entire time. Started talking to them late in 2020, ended up selling late in 2021. The second company came into the picture not too long after that. Um, Fairly easy to eliminate that one after multiple okay. conversations because we knew that the vision of the business was not going to go forward under that situation. And that was awesome. so important. Yeah. No, we're not going to go that direction. Yeah. 
So then lots and lots of conversations with this one business that we ended up going with, I'll just say it, Insights Consulting. The third one. So this is a fun part of the story, right? The third one doesn't come in until we're in the place with, um, with Insights Consulting that we are right about to say like, yep, we are committed to exclusivity for the due diligence process, right? Like at a certain point, you have to say, I'm not talking to any more companies. We'll go through due diligence together. At that point in time, I got this email from a company that was... uh, It was one of those companies that when we were thinking about our vision of transforming the business, this would have been one of the companies that we were like, oh, we want to be like them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So getting the email to begin with, it's like, wait, is this spam? Like, what, what, what is, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> what is taking no. place right es- now? <laughs> especially at the timing that it probably yeah. came in. <laughs> like, how could this be? Um, but it was legit. And so we said, okay, again, purposeful, intentional. We're going to pause for a second. I was really upfront with the company, you know, company one and said, look, there's another company who's approached us. This is a really important decision for us. Obviously, we're going to pause for a second and explore things with that company. And we did. How did they take that? I mean, of course, they weren't super happy about it, I'm sure. Um, but it was... Well, it but was... obviously, they were... Were they mature about it? And like, yeah. Oh, I my think gosh. Yes. Even... Yes. There was never any animosity. Um, always really good vibes and a good relationship through the whole thing. Because, And honestly, if they hadn't been... Right. That's a really good cue to tell you what they might be like. That's how, that's how with, I was getting there. Right. 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 Like, like you, like I love it when you throw kind of a little bit of a wrench in the process like that. Cause then you can see how people really are. Yeah. No. And so I mean, they were disappointed, of course. Um, cause it was a bit of a setback. It happened at a nice opportune time. It was like June, July. This company's in Europe. Think you know, Europe goes on holiday for them. <laughs> um, I'm kidding about that, but it's. No, no, just... I know, I know. I'm in. I don't know what can be. I'm in Minnesota. I just got on and told you, like, I mean, That's it's right. like. I have like only four months of stuff that I can do. And then I just work for the other eight. Because I know. I'm in Michigan. It's similar. I get it. <laughs> yes. So, so no exclusivity then? So not at that and point. Just, so we stopped. We okay. paused. We also let the business the, that had approached at the last minute know that we were in serious talks with another business. Um, and so that if we we're going to go through with like the conversations and seeing if this was viable, it needed to be quick. So we did though. They they knew our timeline. Everybody was um I was very transparent with everyone about like this is what's happening right now. And again, I feel like mm, we could be transparent because we didn't have to sell. You didn't have to sell. <laughs> I love it. I know. It's like who wants this? We got a lot of cash flow and a lot of good stuff going. <laughs> I love it. So I had all those conversations netted out with um an offer and again, a, a great offer, but that one didn't check the boxes of the employee piece that was really important to us, the culture piece that was important, um, as well as potentially the transformation efforts. I think it could have happened with the transformation efforts. It just wasn't as clear. Like there wasn't as much assurance of a joint future with the late in the game company. Even like I said, the offer was better, but so many of those intrinsic boxes weren't checked in the right way. And I mean, I've always, I've always called myself like data is important to me, but my gut is the most important thing. I was just going to ask, how did you, no, no, I love that. Cause it's, it's, it's the gut and then verify or whatever order yeah. it is. But like, so what, because of these things that you're disqualifying them for are, 
potentially major like intangibles, but also we've count the we both agree that they're sometimes the most important they thing, are. but they're not easily quantified. But so how did you actually make that judgment? Yeah. Well, for instance, um, one of the beautiful things about the uh, you know joining of forces with Insights Consulting was they didn't have a U.S. presence. Right. They had presence mm-hmm. in EMEA and APAC, but nothing in the U.S. Well, the small office in New York, I shouldn't say nothing, but it wasn't a large presence in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that gave us the autonomy to be the U.S. presence and to hopefully continue on with the vision and the plan that we had already set out in the U.S. And Got there was it. always yep, yep. also a spirit of we want to learn together. We're not coming in to say, this is the way you have to do things. We see what you've done. We want to learn just as much from you and transform mm-hmm. our business too. The other business that wasn't the same. And because they had a US presence, some of our people would have been laid off for sure. Like there would have been redundancy and functions. And that's when I say not good for employees. I would have had it, a decent number of people that wouldn't have been needed in that equation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wasn't like, part of my goal wasn't to get rid of people <laughs> with yeah, having yeah, the no. business. I wanted to, as much as possible, protect employees, protect clients. Oh, and, and it, uh, I love it, Camille, because I know that based on what you'd already said, you had your decision criteria already laid out. So you knew how to quantify what you just said. Yeah. And so many people, they can do that, but then they don't have a cur- They don't value the company every year. They don't know. What- I mean, so there's, there's no relativity. Yeah. Which there's is no just benchmark. Crazy. Like there isn't that, right. like have some type of a framework that you're working off of. Well, yes, right? and hopefully, yeah. yeah. Hopefully. So that, that's so fantastic. So the, uh, um, so then you go back to conversations with, yep. with insights. So and- we go back to conversations with insights, sign the exclusivity agreement, and then we start going through due diligence. I was, I was due diligence. Super due fun. Diligence. Like- oh my God. <laughs> Again, the <laughs> only other person who knew about this at this point, beside the outside advisors was our CFO. And I mean, she bless her heart. Um, great strategic advisor in her own right, but also she bore the brunt of, of due diligence because of the position she was in. Right. I mean, it was, it was hard on her. She was a phantom shareholder though. So she did like, luckily, thank goodness. Um, she, you know, that, that work was, um, put to good, she profited from the sale too, as all well, the fa- phantoms how did. Clean was, how clean was everything? Did you, cause like, how, and how big was, did the data room get? Cause I it think was, people, like you had already mentioned. Big. I mean, they asked for <laughs> a lot. And again, remember too. Thousands of docs. Oh, thousands of documents and three year history, right? It's I think we had to go back three years, um, 2020. So this is 2021. 2020 was the worst year of our history. So there was a lot of proving that like 2020 was a blip on the radar, guys. This isn't real mm-hmm. like this is not mm-hmm. a good picture and luckily i mean you know in a way having um the process take almost a year it was actually over a year was our to our benefit because 2021 was a phenomenal year for us so mm-hmm. it was easy to say like yep yeah, we you saw 2020 but look at what we're doing in 2021 like we're doing yeah. great in 2021 i love that camille because like you know when i here's a I, Here's a phrase that I say, I don't say it the same all the time, but it's we as entrepreneurs and business owners can tell one hell of a story of where we've been, where we are and where we're going. Yep. And then when you're sitting in that due diligence, when you're talking to the buyer, the prove it stage <laughs> is the, is the, is the son of a gun. I mean, it's because like, you're literally like, 
I'm proving the story, but you have to prove it in the numbers and the documents. Like yep. that's the way it, that's just, it's I proven. mean, they want black and white, right? Like the proof <laughs> is in the black and white and that we had all of 21 to prove it. And that really helped us, I think quite a bit. Did you use your past valuations as part of your storytelling? <laughs> we, too? I don't, I can't honestly remember if we did or not. We probably did. I'm sure your CFO did. Yeah, I'm sure she did. But it's interesting because our valuation, you know, I mean, there's the EBITDA thing. But again, it's like for us, it's so backward, I think. But we never, it was never about the numbers. It was always about like, look at our client roster. Look at the people that we have. Look at our ability to build capabilities organically that are creating value for the marketplace. That Mm -hmm. was like the front of the story for Mm -hmm. us always. Um, And, you know. I I think that goes, I actually think that that is the right order, oddly enough. I think it's the right order. And I think that that's how entrepreneurs naturally do it. What happens is the preparation that you've done, people can't validate You're right. their story, yep. which is the problem. It's like, <laughs> because, because you didn't do all this work, you're not getting credit for what you actually deserve as credit. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's like this, it, it is ass backwards, but it is, it's like, here's the story, but then prove it. And the proof and the it is proof just it. in the technical stuff. Yeah. Truth. So what is the, uh, so you close the deal. Like you and I were talking uh, and you, there was a conversation on the panel about telling your team. Yeah. Do you want to just give, give us your thoughts and philosophies on who, you, why you only brought in your CFO and the advisors and then when you told your team? I will. Yeah. So again, I keep saying throughout the course of this, I was so protective of the employees, right? And so it might be easy to say, yeah, but you didn't tell your employees, <laughs> Um that was, again, that was purposeful. A couple of different things there. One, it sucks up a lot of energy to be focused on this thing. And I, we had a busy year that year. Number one, we needed people to be focused on client work and getting work done, right? So more people involved in this, the more people not involved in client work. But I mean, the honest reason for not sharing with more people was simply we didn't have to sell. And I knew that there was the possibility. I wanted to give myself the freedom that at any point in time, if we needed to walk away or if the deal went south, that it wasn't harming anybody else's psyche, right? Like imagine learning that you're gonna, you're, you're this business that you've been working in, um, that you've decided to sell. Like for a lot of the people that have been there a long time, my name, you know, you just, that's an emotional blow for a lot of people. Oh. And I didn't, if, if it ended up being a false alarm, arr, that could give so much more detriment to the business than oh. protecting them from that news until it was legitimately done. And then we came up with an extremely thoughtful communication plan in town halls once a week yeah. to talk to people and make sure everybody was doing okay. I love it, Camille. And like when I, when you and I, before we hit record, I was telling you a little bit of my story and I can repeat a little bit of it. Cause I like someone had asked you and was challenging in this. And what I heard in our conversation already is you protected them by choosing the right buyer. Yeah. I mean, to me, that was, yeah. Yes. That's because you had the intrinsic principle of making sure that that happened. And from my own perspective, actually, what I did not tell you before we hit record is given the fact that I was running the business with my dad and I, he, Every other week, selling, not selling, selling, not selling. Like, for God's sakes, like, I, I mean, just as the executive who is family, yeah, who I will do whatever because it's just duty, right? It's like, 
I'm an all in person. So I'm like, I don't know what to be all in right now. The mental calories and the cognitive, I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance, yeah. but like, it's oh. like, I can't do both because do I rally these people and hire this person or not? And then, and so what I, what I did tell you is I told uh, a, a couple of my really dear friends who were my top salespeople and one of the times and we didn't sell and it never, he never got over it. He like, actually, when we finally sold Camille, he goes, Ryan, I'm so happy you sold. Cause I I've been looking for a year after you told me. And that's, and like- I was like, I'm so sorry, dude. And I'm like, I'm like, I've been screwed in the head. I'm sorry. I did that to you. And it was my fault as a leader. I got him involved into our mess yeah. of uncertainty. And, and, just, and as leaders, it should be. Yeah. It's well, and I think here's the other piece. It would have been different if we were going to sell and I was leaving the business. That wasn't the case for us either. And part of me says like, do people sit around every day thinking about who owns the business? Probably not. They just want to be in an environment that feels stable and secure and that they can count on going on that way. And and that was the truth. Like I wasn't, I had no intent to like sell and leave. I mean, clearly here we are two, 18 months later, my title has changed, but what I do for the business, how we're running the business, is it a little more complicated because we're part of a global organization? Yep. But I mean, the the day-to-day for most people is pretty much the same. The culture is the same, right? The things that we're selling to our clients, we have some new capabilities we added, but the basis of what we're doing, it's the same. So again, like- Well, and let's like, I love it. I love it. Let me pull something out. Cause so like, if you think now for a second, Camille, if you would have sold to that that other person- Mm -hmm nothing would be the same. No, that would have been would very you, different. Would you? <laughs> so like, here's, here's an interesting way of putting that. Let's say you had that pile of cash, then the extra cash from the other buyer, and you were dealing with all of the catastrophe and the chaos. How many people have been on this show that would like, I can probably guarantee they would say, I would write a check to avoid all of this emotional shit right now. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's, it's like, true. Well, you could have, you could have, you just didn't. <laughs> you just didn't. Yeah. And that's again, so go back to know how much you actually need or, you know, from the sale, um, versus what you might want or what, I mean, you can, it sounds silly again, but it's like, you can only have so much, right. And it's like Mm -hmm. the people, part of the business relationships, connections with people. That's so much more important than the financial. How did you guys, how did you guys take that spirit and then communicate it in the (laughs) exciting, opportunistic, loving way that you wanted to? So we spent a lot of our, so we sold on December 28th. So that is when we shut down between the holidays, right? So shut down other than my CFO and I, we did not shut down. We were like burning the midnight oil. You'll never forget that 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 holiday season. It's like Christmas Eve, (laughs) we're sitting there on the phone forever. Um, So we, during that period of time, um, I needed to let the phantom shareholders know that this had taken place. So there was my due diligence needed to be like, you sell the company they need to know immediately. So I couldn't wait until holiday break was over with because they were all going to get cash deposited into their bank accounts on December 29th or whatever. <laughs> we need your bank routing number. Yes. Wait, what? <laughs> so brought all those guys together um, within a day, you know, right before the final documents, I think were, were no, we probably signed and then called them together. Everybody was kind of like, what the heck is going on? It's we're on Christmas break. Why would we be getting together? I think a couple of them were like, oh, I bet she sold. There's the only company. one reason. <laughs> <You're Yeah. right. laughs> she, unless this is really, really bad or... So let them know. Most were very surprised that it happened. Um, you know, took questions and was there for them over the course of the break to to talk. But our HR director at the time um, and I spent a lot of time starting to figure out how we were going to message this to the company. Um, the 
announcement, like the press release about it wasn't going out until maybe the second week of January. So we had some time. It's not as if the Mm -hmm. rest of the company and our clients needed to know that a financial transaction had taken place. So we were able to Mm -hmm. give ourselves a little bit of space to figure out how best to talk to employees thinking about like, why should they believe in this, right? Like what are their reasons to believe is one of the most important pieces of, of that. And we just, one, we were honest about what happened and why I did it, like what, what my mental space was and why I decided now is the right time. We were honest about the fact that this was not necessarily the only option, but went with this option for these reasons. And then, I mean, people are going to deal with change in different ways, but, um, we're very open door policy about, Hey, if you've got an issue with this or you're excited about whatever, like call, talk, come into my office, whatever we need Mm -hmm. to do to make you feel okay about this. Uh, we were just, we were just there for people and we had informal, you know, conversations, but we actually set up formal like town hall meetings, I think for the first month afterwards, once a week where people could come and we pre-thought FAQs like we had, Mm -hmm. it was pretty buttoned up. We help clients with this kind of thing, change management, we call it. So we use those principles on ourselves. Was it, how did, how generally, how did everybody take it? Mm, Totally mixed. I mean, honestly, even from leadership all the way through to, you know, the most um, junior people in our company, very mixed. I think the less experienced you were, the more excited you were about it. I think the more tenured you were, the less excited because again, think company of 150, you know your position in that. If you're a top leader, you're a top leader, right? And now we're entering a Wait company. Wait a second, the top is way <laughs> the bigger now. Is <laughs> a lot further away at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I get yeah. that. Like I could put myself, I well, I have put myself in those shoes. I yeah. now have a boss, right? I have yeah, a reporting yeah. structure. And so I, I totally get it. Um, but also an amazing opportunity. You know, one piece of this that I think is important and I can't believe I forgot to convey, probably five years before the transaction took place, we were sitting around in a leadership team meeting. We meet quarterly for our strategic planning, right? And I posed a question to the team, very small giancy question, which is why grow? Like we don't have to grow. We can have a great company, service clients really well. You don't have to grow. So why should we grow? Should we grow? And and if so, like, what's your reason, each individual around the table for growing? My reason for that was um, I really felt like we had an opportunity to to, um, take what I would call our special sauce, like our value proposition, right, to more clients, clients that didn't know we existed at that point, as well as more potential employees of the company. Like I thought that that was a reason to grow. Like we do something really special. People love what the we do. The world is better. The world. If yeah. You guys are bigger. Yep. So our, that was my reason. I never, when I said that would have envisioned that route to growth was through being acquired, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it, you know, that's how it played yeah. out. And I stood on that same proposition after the acquisition, like, okay, think about this. We now have a larger platform for growth. We've got a global prep platform for growth and colleagues around the world that we get to learn mm-hmm. from, but that also want to learn from us. Again, part of the piece, part of the important piece here is it wasn't as if we were being absorbed into a machine that didn't want to hear from us. We got to bring our 
special sauce to that table and mix it with all the other. And are they are they use are they using it? Are they actually holding true with their promise of wanting to learn from you? There's while a lot you're of stuff, yeah, that we talk about like reverse integration, right? So it's not everything is going one way. We're coming to the table and really thinking about awesome. what makes sense for the global organization. So yeah. I, I, it's just so awesome. So Camille, like you, when you think about how I even teed up my uh, presentation at the conference of Bose, 75%, 25%, 75% people not happy. Yep. How, when you, when you look back at the whole journey, how would you, you happy? You, you're proud. I'm, I think I made the right decision. Like I just feel for so many reasons, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Yes. i just, that makes me so happy. I just, I love it when people get what they expected and they did it on purpose. <laughs> it's just like, it's, I love it. Um, what's, uh, what's it like having that monkey off your back from the ownership perspective? It's, it's, it's honestly really, really nice. I mean, I think that, you know, COVID happened that had its own complications, but then we went through the whole great resignation, right? Being an owner of a business with that happening so different than being a leader of a business. Again, it's stressful no matter what, but as the owner, Ooh, you're, it, it just, it takes it to a whole level, different level of grit, especially oh, when know. you're in a professional services business, right? Trying to make sure that you're keeping the people there and um, still just as committed to that. But the seriousness of it just isn't quite as finite when you don't own it. Yeah, because you can always walk away from your job. <laughs> it's mean, not tied to your whole retirement. Right, exactly. And I mean, not <laughs> that I would, but you know, like it's it's liberating. A friend of mine put it this yeah. way. It's like, it's almost like you've had back issues your entire year and you or entire life and didn't know it. And then you go to a chiropractor and they do an adjustment. And you're like, oh, that's what it feels like not to have. You yeah. know, kind of now like- I'm going to start day trading. Now we can take the risk. <laughs> that we, can do, we can do whatever we want with our money. Uh, no, it's just, it's good. This is so fun. Yeah, thank um, you. Thank, thank you so much for sharing this story. It's uh, there's so many lessons to be learned from it, and um, I usually wrap up with two questions. Yeah. Um, the word intentional, you've used it a bunch, and I don't think you even did it on purpose. It's <laughs> just probably ingrained. I can tell. I love to hear people's definition of that word. Um, what would be your definition of the word intentional? Intentional to me means um, that you've given something thought like that you had a a plan and then you followed through with that plan even if the plan wasn't exactly laid out right they maybe a framework is a good is a better use than a plan because a framework can be flexible a plan you think of like a b c d not necessarily (laughs) but a framework for decision making so you know that you're doing right by yourself and the other stakeholders that you're thinking about in that equation i love it Camille, if there's a place to reach you, follow you, learn more, what's the best place for people to reach out? Yeah. So email is Camille at wearehumanate, and that's a, a number eight dot com. And then I'm on LinkedIn, Camille Nasita on LinkedIn, um, probably the best places. Thank you so much for spending the time. You. This, this is so literally, it was, it, yeah, it was <laughs> so, so fun. fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Wasn't that awesome? Honestly, you can tell why I enjoyed watching Camille on that panel so much. She has so much thought. She did a lot of hard work. She made the right decisions, even though a lot of the decisions along her journey were not easy. And one of the big takeaways that I had for from the podcast interview with her was that it's super fascinating to me how people that are not the original founders have a unique ability to really embrace the leadership role versus the financial asset in a way different 
in almost easier fashion. I mean, I think about other individuals that I've met who they either bought their company or they stepped into a leadership role, then got equity, whatever it might be. You have such a different emotional tie to the business than you would have if you're, if you were the founder. I can personally explain from my own personal experience. I can tell that that's definitely a thing. And if we can, as founders can embrace that level of kind of like we're bifurcating our roles and then we can emotionally hold true what we need from the business financially, we can say, okay, well, we need this financially, but also we want to do these things with our leadership role. We want this kind of impact and our legacy with the company long-term. The number one way to get everything that you want is to grow the equity value of your company based on the intrinsic value and the future cash flow sustainability. Then you can get whatever you want. But I think it's interesting hearing these stories about people that weren't the original founders, how they're able to make you know, I would say more objective decisions along the way, which I watch a high degree of success that is correlated with that because sometimes the emotions get in our way, even though that's what makes it real and the journey of entrepreneurship fun. I think we need either people around us or a plan or a framework for decision making to really take that objective view. If you uh, want to take the first step, I would highly recommend going and checking out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, where you can then start diving in, get your score on the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard on how well you're viewing and running the company like a financial asset, and you're able to dive into some of the Intentional Growth Academy uh, exercises from the five principles, as well as the podcast archive library. I appreciate everybody tuning in, and I will see you next week.